Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode... Snatched. In early 1980, Jackie Shutt and her husband Harold Lee Shutt embarked on a multi-state baby-snatching enterprise that involved killing the mothers of the infants. One of those infants was Amanda Bell. Although Jackie and Lee were implicated in Amanda's abduction and the murder of her mother, they were never prosecuted. In 2020, the documentary Diabolical, Hands That Rob the Cradle, first aired. The basis for the episode was the book by the late Anne Rule entitled Lying in Wait. Today on Murder Most Foul, you will hear the tortured tale in Amanda Bell's own words as she is my guest. Welcome, Amanda. So, uh, welcome, Amanda. I am so glad you accepted my invitation to share your story today. Having done segments with uh, survivors of Ted Bundy, I know this can't be easy. But you did cooperate with Anne Rule in her in, in writing of her book, and you also appeared on camera for the diabolical episode on your case. What made you want to go public in this way in such a traumatic and private part of your life? So, uh, welcome, Amanda. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Um, I, I decided to go public because, um, well, in all honesty, when I was approached by Leslie to help finish um, my portion of the of the book, Lying in Wait, um, I actually grew up with a lot of very misleading information. Um, I think that my father did the best that he could to kind of protect me from that could have been potentially very damaging to my childhood. So he didn't give me a lot of information. Um, when I spoke to Leslie, I learned things that I did not know before. Um, I did not know at the time that uh, Jackie would be eligible for parole um, on a rotating basis. Uh, I was very, I, I was, I grew up being told that they were in prison. They'd be in prison forever. Um, I never had to worry about them. Um, and then I learned things uh, like that there was a an accomplice. Um, I, I just I learned a lot of truths that I didn't have prior, and um, just the, the level of injustice when it came to the things that I learned um, made me really want to continue to to seek further information that I did not have. And I I really the more I learned, the stronger I felt that there were more instances aside from the ones that that we're going to talk about today. So you just mentioned uh, Jackie. That would be Jackie Shutt. And uh, so tell us about Jackie Shutt and her uh, husband, Lee. They're um, Harold Lee Shutt, and he goes by Lee, and then Jackie Sue Shutt. And so uh, there was a motive behind this, if you will. In a sense, it wasn't random or psychotic killing. Uh, it was for money. Uh, and so the, the scheme was to uh, kidnap a baby and sell it. And uh, they sort of got this idea or, or uh, Jackie got this idea from another scam artist, correct? That involved a doctor. Well, yeah, yes. Um, yes, there was there was a doctor, according to according to the interviews that were done by Harold. Yes, there was a doctor that wanted to have her um, abduct babies, and then the doctor was selling them to couples that were willing to adopt. So the hook, or the sting, if you will, involved in this uh, baby snatching um, was a beautiful baby photo contest. Um, so tell that, tell us what, uh, how, you know, how that was supposed to play out. 
Um, as far as I've been able to uncover, uh, she met her in the parking lot coming out of the the grocery store on the naval base. Um, so that's already an instance where, you know, you normally trust everyone that's on the naval base because they're some sort of military. So the pitch was um, that she, she gushed over her new baby and said that, you know, I really think that she would win some prizes. We're doing a beautiful baby contest. Please let me take some pictures and um, if you win, there's a shopping spree involved and we'll come get you and we'll take you shopping. So that's kind of how she roped her in. And she gave your, now again, we have to say you are, how old were you? Um, uh, uh, 10 weeks, maybe. Wow. Two and a half. You were the object of the abduction. So again, your mother trusted her and um, gave her her home information. And so obviously she shows up. So actually, some of the accounts that you've been able to see on TV aren't, aren't entirely accurate. Um, fortunately, I have um, my father kept kind of meticulous journal journals, I would say, um, <laughs> notes on the, the days leading up and the days after. So I do know that he was home at the time. It was very, very early in the morning. It was around seven o'clock in the morning. Um, and uh, so Jackie at the time was introduced to my mother as Sally. So Sally um, knocked on the door and said, we wanted to let you know that you've won the beautiful baby contest. We're going to take you on a shopping spree. Um, you need to get ready immediately. You need to bring the baby and please don't tell anyone. And she went inside and told my father that the, the contest people were there and that she was leaving with me and that she would be back later in the afternoon. seems innocent enough now he did not come out and see that see sally right he did not see sally at the door however there were accounts that he did see sally and my mother drive off in the car um he was able to witness it from the window and then there was a neighbor that also witnessed it and um they drive to another state with you they do um they for for all accounts, they they um, tuck my mother and I in a car, and they drive to Dallas, Texas. And how far is it now? This all happened in is it uh, Louisiana or Alabama? Yes, Louisiana. Louisiana. Yep. That's so about where I was. about about how far? How about how many miles was that? And 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 driving. I think, you know, I think it was about four hours, a four hour drive. And by all of the accounts that I've been able to come across, um, they did when she became very anxious about the length of the drive, um, another man in the car that she had not met. Um, and she just started to get very antsy when she was asking questions and not getting answers that made her feel good. They offered her a drink, which had um, barbiturates in it. Then this is not a time, unfortunately, a time of cell calls, cell phones. So no one had a cell phone. No one uh, could could ping, uh, you know. So, again, it made it a lot easier. Your father, uh, after a couple of hours, but, you know, he didn't know she was four hours away. It's like, OK, you know, he had no idea. He figured probably, I guess, that was local. They were going someplace local. So uh -huh. even if you give it time for the spree, the shopping spree, what's going on? So. Obviously, he got concerned. And when, do you know when, based on journals or other conversations with him, when he alerted anyone? Did he start with family, maybe, or did he go right to the police? It was around 9 p.m. the same day. He decided to call um, the military-based police and let them know that I that we had left in the early part of the day and they hadn't returned yet, and he was he was getting concerned. And did at that point, did they kept it within the base or or when did it then move on to, uh, to to local police? Did it move to local police before your mother was discovered or only after? It did move to local police before her body was discovered. Um, it moved to local police when the following day um, I my father woke up to a knock on the door and it was a cab driver that had. Um, possession of me and explained to him that 
the lady at the hotel gave him $20 to return me to my father. And it was at that point he informed base police again, and then the base police informed the local authorities. So now was this cab driver, was he, he was, he obviously, did they come back at all or was the cab driver from Texas? Did he come all the way from Texas or did they drive you back closer and turn it over? In other words, was it a local cab driver? Um, that is very, very unclear. Um, that is, is, is just a portion of the case where with the the third party that was involved, um, that person is the one that has that information. I, I don't think that he drove all the way from Texas to Louisiana. Um, how was your uh, how was your mother's body discovered? So simultaneously, as I was being returned to my father by the cab company in New Orleans, um, maids discovered a dead body in a room that they were set to clean up uh, upon a late checkout. So that is that is how her body was discovered. Initially, your mother's death was ruled a suicide. Um, what led the authorities to, uh, to believe that was the case? What they found that led them to believe that was a suicide was um, a suicide note uh, written to my father in my mother's handwriting on the the table. Uh, And obviously the body turned over and um, cuts on the wrists that led them. And they were able uh, shortly after that to discover some razor blades, everything that would indicate um, that someone had taken their own lives. The problem is that comes out, of course, a postmortem is that the in the um, uh, uh, autopsy was that the cuts were made after your mother was dead. Hmm. A little difficult to commit suicide after you're dead. And sure. yes, they did found find alcohol all over. They found barbiturates in the alcohol. And which to me, it's just, you know, bizarre. And, and and they should have made, well, I don't know if they would have just tried to overdose her, would have made more sense because this now, I mean, they're not that they're, either one of them is a, is a Mensa uh, person, but it's actually uh, the letters that were designed to make it look like a suicide was turned out to be actually the first clues that uh, led the authorities to believe that it was an, uh, a staged suicide. Is that right? What they were able to find through the letters was that uh, there was actually more than one where she explained that she was leaving him because she fell in love with a doctor that could provide for her and and her baby um, in ways that he could not. And that she was very much in love with this doctor and that the mother of the doctor was going to be taking care of me while they honeymooned and she went shopping for all new things. So that was in the first letter. In the second letter indicated that um, the doctor had left her and she was completely devastated and that she was going to be ending her life and the doctor's mother was going to be the one taking care of me. Perfect. I mean, it's it's bizarre, but okay, now that makes more sense. So uh, your mother kills herself and and you get rescued by the, the, the doctor. So that, and then of course, you know, we'll talk about, we're not sure why they changed their mind and didn't sell you and return you rather than selling you. Do you have any idea? Let's just stop here. Uh, if we want to follow this crazy, you know, uh, scheme of, of getting babies and selling them. So is there any reason why you, so you, we do not know why they did not take you and sell you. Right. Um, I, I believe that the person that has the answer to that is still running free and about um, it, that. So, so for what I've been able to take from the case files that I have, uh, the third party, um, the third party is the one that returned me. Uh, anything after that is, is strictly speculation on my part. I believe that they returned me because they didn't mean to end her life um, with the overdose of the barbiturates. Um, And then when that happened, they slit her wrist to kind of deter attention away from the overdose. Um, And I believe that they returned me because at that point they knew that they had really, you know, had not fine tuned this process actually. And they returned me to sort of like mitigate damage, I suppose. Do we know um, if the accomplice was actually in the hotel room throughout all this, uh, the, the barbiturates and the drinking and the, the, the fake uh, suicide notes? 
Well, by eyewitness accounts, the third, the accomplice was in fact in the hotel room because um, a bellhop delivering room service witnessed three women and one man, one man in the room. Got it. Um, and of course, well, like I said, that person's not been found and, and uh, we'll get, you know, when we get to the trials and the, uh, like I said, we've got a lot from the husband, but we don't, obviously he has not said anything about, so he's protecting that accomplice. So you're returned and, and the, again, you're an infant. So, you know, time is going to go by and, and, but at the time there is a death certificate written uh, that's, that puts it as, as suicide uh, not homicide, and um, it, it boggles the mind, uh, you know. And and later, when it comes out, we'll talk about your, which is another one of your efforts to get that corrected. That I mean, you don't it it, it won't bring your mom back, but you want it in history that uh, you know she was a, a a victim of murder, not of of. Uh, of suicide and we'll talk a little bit later too about because that's part of the trial to the the suicide note and 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 what was this something you did that you moved the note to the fbi or was it the authorities had the note uh uh analyzed by the fbi in quantico it was the it was the authorities that did that there were two very diligent detectives that did not accept the medical examiner's ruling of suicide. So it was it was two very diligent detectives that continued to push. Um, and, and then um, my mother's family, in part, also were very, very adamant that she was not unhappy. She was not in a position where she was going to end her own life. Um, and, and in fact, they had many, many letters that she wrote home where she said um, that I have everything that I ever wanted. I have a lovely husband and I have a child and I'm building a life that I love. So for all intents and purposes, um, the the ruling that she ended her own life obviously didn't sit well with her family at all. And they were the ones that were sort of pushing for FBI investigation. And it was the FBI that connected with the investigators in Dallas that sort of got things going. Um, they collected letters that she wrote from home, um, lots of them. They, they were able to um, take from that, like her tone, the, the tone of her conversations, um, obviously her handwriting samples, the, the language that she used and the language that she didn't use, and they were able to analyze things that way. And and they, their determination was that the, not that she didn't write them, uh, but that it was a forced uh, that she was uh, forced to do it. When and um, how did you begin to find out um, the true story of um, how your mother died? Well, actually, there's quite a bit of drama surrounding how I found out. Um, I was very, very young. I would say maybe three. I was very, very young. And I was uh, at an aunt's house. That would be a, a sister of my mother. Um, and I was... I was at her house and she is the one that told me that the person in my life that I had, the mother figure I had in my life at the time was not my mother and that my mother was killed by very bad people. Um, so, so that was the, the very first exposure I had to it. Um, obviously when you're that age, you really just don't understand. Um, and you're also like a, a little parrot. You repeat things. You just repeat what you hear. So later that evening, um, we went to bingo. That is something that that family did um, quite often. Uh, and my grandfather was there. So this would be my my um, my mother's father. And the aunt said, um, why don't you tell grandpa what I told you about your mom? And I repeated what she said to me. I said, very bad people killed my mom. Um, and, and of course, it made him cry. Uh, and as a, as a very young child, that is very scary when the adults around you cry. Um, so that was just sort of like my first exposure of... Um, the fact that this topic was something that was uh, that created a lot of drama when it came up. So I kind of grew to a point where I didn't bring it up often. I, I was around 18 months old. My father remarried. So I was raised by him and a stepmom. Um, I oh. called her by her first name. 
uh, I thought every family was kind of like that. And um, when I was about to have a sibling, so I, I have half siblings, I was about to have the first sibling um, and they really wanted to encourage me to call um, my stepmother mom um, just for the sake of the sibling. And so I had at, that, at the time that all of this sort of unfolded, I had started doing that um, and then you know, the aunt was like, you know, she's not really your mom. Um, this is what happened to your mom. So that is sort of, that was, that was kind of how that all unfolded. And at the time, my father um, was very, very upset with, uh, with my aunt for kind of, you know, spilling the beans when he uh, had decided that that was not something I needed to know about, especially at that age. I, I do feel like, Maybe at some point he would have explained it to me, um, but definitely not that young. And um, when he did explain it to me at that time, because obviously, you know, I repeated it uh, and, and he also started to cry. And my father was a very, very important person to me. He was um, he was the one person that made me feel like I belonged somewhere. So when he became upset, it was that was definitely a huge indicator that this was something that was really hard for people to talk to me about. And I didn't bring it up much after that. So the only real conversation I ever had was shortly after that first exposure when he said, yes, your mom was killed by very bad people, but stepmom's here to take care of you. And, and, you know, we're a family. And, and that was just sort of, after that, it was just sort of something that always sat in the back that we just didn't talk about. But when did you then start suspecting um, that it was not just, you know, she was shot or she was knifed? There was something more weird that, again, that the most of the people thought it was suicide. So I was probably around 12. Um, my parents had left for a few hours to get groceries. Uh, and I was very nosy. <laughs> I was very nosy. I knew that there was always a briefcase in my father's desk. I was always told not to touch it. Um, and when I knew I had a chance to, I went straight to the briefcase. Um, and that's where I was able to uncover um, his journals, her death certificate, a lot of newspaper articles. And I just yeah. sat and poured over them. Um, and I was just completely confused. I did not know. I did not I didn't understand what two and all was uh, because now we're talking about the nineties where barbiturates don't, they're not as prominent. Um, I did not know what it was. Uh, so I quickly put everything back in the briefcase, except the death certificate. And I took it to school with me the next day. A fairly unique show and tell item. I would say, you know, I needed to ask somebody who could give me the answer. So I, I took it to my health teacher at the time. So I was in eighth grade and I took it to the health teacher and um, I said, can you tell me what two and all is and what this means? And he, he looked at it and he looked at me and he said, you know what, this, this is, um, so this is a drug. This is a barbiturate that makes you very sleepy, very groggy, very suggestible. Um, but this is really hard for me to talk to you about. So why don't we just go to the school counselor? So again, that was another instance where I brought it up and something negative came out of it because obviously they called my parents and let them know that I had it. And, um, you know, so I didn't get into any trouble, but it was just, there was never like a sit down conversation about it. It was just like, okay, give it back to me so I can put it back in the briefcase. And, you know, the vibe was always just to not discuss this. So that's sort of how that situation unfolded as well. So, uh, but you, yeah, like you said, you sort of just, again, at 12, you just put it away because you're told to put it away and I'll do that in yeah. quotation marks. But you clearly, when this, Nowadays, with videos and movies and everything, you can't. Five year old understands, okay, that if it's a bar, you know, if it's a drug that killed my mom, well, she had to eat it. Okay. So where's the bad man? You know, where's the bad people? But you sort of just let that, that go. You let that sit as still uh, in your mind. Now we're talking suicide, but no one is, no one is saying suicide in your family at this point still, right? It's still bad men killed her. Right. Um, and, and uncovering the death certificate, I was able also to uncover a lot of newspaper articles um, from before the perpetrators were caught. And then after they were caught where it implicated, you know, some of the details of what happened, the postmortem cuts, um, the 
the drugging of the drinks and, and those types of things. So I was able to sort of put little bits and pieces of it together. And that was the best that I had for, for a very long time. From the period of uh, uh, 12 years old, when you're sort of uh, being, you know, through newspaper, you know, through your discovery of the uh, the briefcase, um, did you, uh, how would, did, you, did processing for you continue uh, on the case and the loss, or did you sort of just put that aside? Uh, there was definitely no processing. Um, I, it, there was no processing, no support system. I had quickly learned um, talking about it to the people around me uh, made them upset. Um, so I had stopped doing that. Uh, I tried to speak to peers about it. Um, and it definitely started to, uh, it sort of started to make me an outcast. Um, this is not something that your, your friends talk about at sleepovers. It's, it's just, it's just not there. It's, it's, it's bizarre. Um, and it sounds like it should be a movie. So, uh, you know, there were people that didn't quite believe me. And it just, it was something that I just sort of grew to keep to myself. At this point, I think it's probably appropriate in the story to um, introduce Tracy Clemens. So why don't you tell us about Tracy? So through also also through discovering the newspaper articles is also how I discovered that there was another family that this affected. Um, and what happened with Tracy was uh, Tracy and her young baby brother. It was the, the same type of situation. Tracy's mother was approached in a grocery store. Um, you know, the, the lady gushed over her new baby, wanted to take pictures. Um, Geneva Clemens declined, uh, but wrote her name down for a raffle ticket of some sort that definitely indicated the address um and then later in the evening that the woman from the grocery store showed up at the clemens household um and it was just tracy clemens her young baby brother and her mom because her father worked nights and this woman convinced mrs clemens to go out in the yard so she could take pictures and at that point um jackie took the baby from the carrier and shot Geneva Clemens in the chest and um, Geneva Clemens very last words to her own daughter were to run and Tracy Clemens ran to the neighbor's house which happened to be relatives of hers and that is when they called the police but at that time Jackie and her husband had already gotten the baby in the car and left so Tracy witnessed the death of her mother in her front yard and the abduction of her young baby brother And at again, this is in the documentary, uh, not the actual moment, of course. I'm, I'm, I don't know if the trial was. Uh, I'm guessing it wasn't uh, televised, but she is also in the documentary with you. Uh, a diabolical was at the trial and pointed, uh, you know, said that's the man who, you know, or the the woman that shot my mother and took my brother, and. Um, tell us, uh, tell us how now again, so she was, was, um, Tracy out in the yard when this happened or did she run when she heard the shot? So by her account, she was out in the yard along with her mother and her, she was in very, very close proximity to her mother. And she was able to witness the, the lifting of the arm, the flash of the gun, the very loud noise. Um, and she recounted that to police and also to, you know, her family members that were neighbors. So um, that had to have been very, very traumatic at that age. So uh, we're all very, very thankful that she was able to recount all of that um, as often as she was. And then she was able to, to implicate Jackie during the trial, which ultimately led to Jackie's conviction for the, the murder of Geneva Clemens. And, once again, as in your case, uh, baby James was not sold. Uh, thankfully, he was recovered soon after uh, the murder of his mother and his abduction, right? Because there was actually a third person there during the abduction, and it was Jackie's daughter. So her name is Ronica, R-O-N-N-I-K-A, and in the, um, she is, she's actually the daughter of Jackie Shutt. At the time of the 
murder of Geneva Clemens, she was 14. So she was there. She saw it. She witnessed it. And you know her in Anne Rule's book as Dana Rose because at the time she wanted to protect her own identity. Um, so she was born as Tammy Zimmer. That is her. That was her legal legal name. Um, she disguised her name in the book, and then shortly after that, she changed her name to Ronica. That is what she's known as publicly, but she was there as well. So by by Ronica's accounts, um, James was very very fussy. He was crying a lot. Um, Ronica was trying to soothe him um, when she could not soothe him. Ronica's account is that Lee punched her in the face and made her nose bleed. And at that point in time, um, I think by Ronica's account, um, she had got something on the blanket. They pulled the blanket away and found that the baby was imperfect. Um, um, that he had a club foot and that's that was her account um and then lee's account was that they started to hear police sirens so they they put him in a in a, in a rural field in a farmer's field and he was discovered that way the discovery is indisputable that a farmer was out uh, do you know the the season or the time i mean was hypothermia a possibility or yeah, so yes, it was. Um, it was in January. This occurred just a few weeks before I was born, and it was in Alabama. So it was it was very cold, um, and he did suffer some illness from being left out in the cold. They're assuming there was about an hour between when he was left out and when he was discovered by the farmer who was who was just going outside to to tend to his livestock. It, it again it claims again in the in the diabolical which you know is a, a small detail doesn't matter but like he was out looking for his dog or something and you know heard this noise and thought maybe it, or maybe heard this noise and thought it was a dog i'm not sure if it was his dog but went towards the noise and you know a la you know moses in the in the reeds uh he finds this baby uh you know on his land and and uh thank god get up and contacts the police um obviously this must have been close enough to the abduction uh, uh, geographically that they, the police must right away have known uh, that this was the baby that was abducted. But now, as you mentioned it, just by saying what your, you know, your birth, that uh, this happened then, this was first, this was the first case. You think there might be more though than just two? Based on Veronica's accounts, yes, there, there are more. Um, she is very hazy on certain details because she was um, regularly abused by both Jackie and Lee. Um, and and uh, shortly after the trial, she received a lot of mental health help. And at that point in time, some of that included some electric shock therapy. So her memories are sometimes um, very questionable, but she has always, always, always stuck by the fact that there were more than just the two. Um, she she does not explain witnessing any further murders. I don't think that it would be outside of the realm to speculate that there were more murders. Um, every time one of these cases kind of pops up, it definitely piques my interest when, you know, somebody discovers that they are not who they were led to believe that they are and that there was an abduction involved. Um, so, yeah, I definitely believe that there were multiple instances after that based on Ronica's recount of of sort of the childhood that she led so many of the details of how um jackie and lee were brought to justice and and what um eventually happened to them it is well laid out in ann rule's book Lying in Wait, which is an anthology of crimes, and the chapter on um, your situation and Tracy's is is called The Baby Seller. And Anne's daughter, uh, Leslie Rule, an author in her own right, um, was uh, part also of the documentary, uh, and uh, as was a um, uh, on-camera uh, contributor. But uh, why don't you tell us um, a little bit about what you know of, uh, you know, how they were caught and, and how the trial or trials turned out? Um, a lot of the information I received came from Leslie uh, during the production of the book. And what I was able to uncover at that point in time was that they um, 
when they discovered Jackie, she was already in prison for prostituting her own daughters. Um, that is something that quaintly got very left out of the diabolical recording because there was no participation from Ronica. Um, this has affected her deeply, very deeply mentally. And she was just not in a capacity where she was willing to participate and sort of continue to dig this up. But it was at that point in time that I, um, was able to learn that the death penalty was removed from, uh, it was sort of used as a bargaining chip. Uh, they had to extradite her from Yakima in order to bring her to Alabama. And in order for her lawyer to agree to that, they took the death penalty off the table. She was due to serve 25 years plus another 20 for the kidnapping. And at that point in time, um, she had some, some reductions for behavior. But after that, um, I was able to discover that she is up for parole every so many years based on the ruling of the parole board. Um, my father was uh, receiving the warning phone calls that victims of a crime usually receive when someone's about to be considered for parole. Um, he never, ever discussed them. I didn't find out that he was the receiver of those calls until after he passed away. So I didn't even know that this was happening until the book came out. Um, I started to foster a relationship with Tracy and she was the one that told me she and as well as Leslie told me that um, she was going to be out for parole. And that was the first time that I, I went to her hearing. Uh, that was in 2018. Um, that was the first one that I went to. I'm not, I know that she had some considerations prior to that, that Tracy and her father were attending. The first one I went to was in 2018. Did you make contact with Tracy before that? Or did you just sort of show up and, hey, Tracy? I did, make, I did make contact with Tracy before that. Shortly after I made initial contact with Leslie uh, in regards to the book that was coming, um, Leslie's the one that let me know that James Clemens was still alive because I was led to believe that he wasn't. Um, I desperately, desperately wanted to talk to him. And she expressed to me at that time that, um, that he was not willing to be involved in any of this, but that he had a sister and that she wanted to speak to me. So my very first contact with, um, with Tracy was very shortly after I was contacted by Leslie. Um, and it was, I really don't I really don't have words to explain that very first initial contact. It was just she's got such a very sweet voice and a sweet southern accent and it was just it was very heartwarming to hear somebody else that understood um that understood my life because up until that point there there was just nobody. So um, it was at that point in time that I really started to foster a relationship with her. And so we had planned to meet up at the at the parole hearing together. So I met her there with uh, she was there with her father and I um, my husband took me there. So it was the four of us that went into that first initial hearing when there was the two of us there. So um, besides you four um, and the parole board, of course, who else uh, was at this hearing? There was a group there called VOCAL, um, and it stands for Victims of Crimes and Leniency. Um, they were very, very friendly, and their only job is to um, attend parole hearings with victims and to help advocate for themselves and advocate against the release of the the criminal. Um, they were the ones that just sort of explained to me uh, about the fact that she wasn't, that Jackie wasn't going to be there, but I needed to be prepared for um, people to be there to advocate for her release. Um, so there was no lawyer per se, uh, but there was uh, some advocates there to help us kind of through it. And they, they sat with us while we explained to this panel of strangers why we didn't want her out. Was there anyone advocating uh, for her legally? And then was there anybody there supporting her from family? There was no one there to support her, not in the legal sense and not in uh, none of her family members were there. Were, did they make a, a decision on the spot or did they then do a, a written you know, report to you? And when did you hear about that? They did make a decision. They did make a decision immediately. They let us know at that point in time that they appreciated the things that we said um, and that she would be up for consideration again in the maximum time window, which was five years. And just uh, uh, strangely, that is um, that just happened yesterday. It was on the 19th. It was on the 19th. 19th. OK. Did yes. you go? Did you attend that one? 
I did not attend that one. Um, I had to, uh, there was a lot of consideration in that. Um, this started to affect me very profoundly. The So it started with the book and that was just kind of like a, an opening of Pandora's box. So all of the um, support system and how do you process this, none of that really ever started to occur, occur until the book came out. And then it's just been a long process of me sort of accepting that this is just a part of who I am. Um, and I go through phases where I really want to fight against things. And then there are days that I really just want to ignore this and live my normal life. And then there are days where, you know, it just kind of is what it is. But sometimes this makes me very, very anxious. Um, and it was actually after the filming of Diabolical that I really just started to to develop very debilitating anxiety. Um, and I think it was because I really wasn't wholly prepared for some of the things they were going to ask me and some of the things we were going to talk about. And that's why I asked you for a list of questions that you were going to ask me so that I could just sort of have some type of preparation. Um, but I opted not to go to this most recent hearing for, um, for several reasons. Obviously, I was notified about it right before Christmas was coming. Um, and I really just felt like it was, it, it was weighing so heavily on me that I was, it was kind of stealing my holiday spirit. Um, one of my children is in the military. I haven't seen him in quite some time. So in consideration of whether or not I was going to fly to Alabama, um, it really just kind of made me sick in the pit of my stomach to spend money flying to do this when I have this child that I haven't seen because he's, he's away in the military. So, um, I really, really went back and forth because I was very scared that if I didn't go, um, they would not see me as a person. It's easy for people to read about this and to watch it and to just kind of like, oh, it's, it's kind of like a movie, but there are actually like real people behind it that have real feelings and, and they're not, they're not always easy to express. They're very complicated feelings. So when I opted not to go, it was very heavy for me to to say, okay, I'm not going to go because I really wanted to be there for Tracy, but I also knew I was not in a position where I could really fully be there for her. Um, this is the first one that she's been to without her dad because he passed away a few years ago. Um, so I felt really bad that I did not go, but it was for my own mental health and well-being that I chose not to attend this one. Now, because, I was in contact. I, I was in contact with her throughout the day, though, um, just kind of like getting information about you know what was going on and how long things were being and and things like that. So I stayed in touch with her with her throughout the day and just did my best to support her from afar. Have you in any way tried to make any contact? Uh, by letters or or any kind of other contact with with Jackie over the years. That is a very loaded question. <laughs> um, I have written countless letters to both Jackie and Harold. Um, I never send them anywhere. The way that the the way that this has sort of played out throughout my life is because we know that there's the third party that was never um, she was implicated. So. She was implicated by a name. Uh, so investigators did at one point know who she was. I'm not sure where that fell off the way that it did. But because there's this third party and also because of the, the doctor that was involved um, and that there was no prosecution on either of those ends, I have not sent them because I do not uh, rightfully really want Jackie or Lee to know my location. So I've, I've tried to go about it in all different ways. Um, to get them some correspondence without them figuring out where I live. But I also, there's some part of me that's afraid of what they're going to say back. Um, I believe that one would comply and, and give answers and one would not. So, and I wasn't sure how I would feel about that. So I'm not in a place right now where I feel comfortable letting them know where I live for one and then, you know, receiving any type of answer from them. So I'm sorry, just so I understand, they have been named outright, but not charged with anything. I'm sorry. So you do know uh, the name and possible location of the doctor and the accomplice, or am I reading something that I didn't hear? No, you're not reading something that you didn't hear. It's just not something that I have ever been able to talk about publicly. She was implicated. The, third, the, the accomplice was implicated by name. I know who she is. I know where she lives. Um, because I've had a private investigator find her. Um, also, the location of the doctor who, um, you know, by all reports, 
the investigators implicated that he killed himself when they were sort of closing in on him. But I've been able to discover that he, in fact, did not. Um, and I know where he lives. Let me just add, and I'll, you know, this is important for me to say, you're an amazing woman. Um, I, I, I can't begin to fathom uh, going through something like both you and Tracy. Uh, at least no one tried to, you know, I mean, right from the beginning, it was known that this was a murder of Tracy's mother. In your case, the the, the muddying of the waters of the, the suicide. Thank God it got put aside very quickly for your father to go through his life thinking, you know, that his wife was having an affair and all the rest of it would be so sad. Uh, another, you know, a horrible thing to be bearing. So at this point, I mean, the two murders happened and that you can even talk about it. I think, again, uh, going back to Kathy Kleiner and Rhonda Stapley, I was very amazed at their poise and that they wanted to do this. And I mean, it wasn't just me. I mean, they've been on other uh, shows one of them, I believe, has got a book coming out. One of the uh, one of the two, and that um, that that uh, that circumstance of living through an attack like that, a brutal, both of them brutal attacks, and escaping, and the the stories of their escapes are incredible. The why they weren't killed um, is 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 tribute to the soul, the the strength, the fiber of people, and some. People would say it's no big deal. You just got to get on. But uh, us on the outside cannot dismiss what it must have been like and and how you survived it. And as you say, you have a family now. You have children. You have some half-sibs. Um, so in a sense, life did go on for you. And punishment, for whatever it's worth, has been meted out. And hopefully both of the parties will will die in prison without seeing the light of day. Um, it's not for me, that's not, um, uh, retribution or revenge. It's like, they don't deserve to be among us and uh, wherever people's opinions on death penalty, it's immaterial with any luck. They will never walk the earth out with us. They will not perpetrate crimes again. And so, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm personally from the outside satisfied with that. Are you, are you satisfied with that? Um, I, I am not satisfied with the fact that I have to keep attending parole hearings. I don't think that's right. Um, I, I don't think that's right at all when there are victims, because when there are surviving victims of these crimes, it's it's like being revictimized, even if we don't confront the, the perpetrator to begin with. So um, I had very mixed feelings when I learned that uh, Jackie her parole was denied, but she'd be up again for consideration in five years. I had very mixed feelings about it. Um, I, I was expecting to be happy and excited about it, but I was like, well, you know, I'm going to have to do this again. Uh, unless she, unless she passes away in prison, I'm going to have to do this again. And it's just something that's always there. So um, am I satisfied with it uh, for the time being? Yes, but ultimately no, I'm not. And I know you do mention that, uh, should if the um, if your crime, the crime against your mother had been prosecuted, which at this point it's not, they've decided she's in prison and they don't, you know, the, the, they don't care. Uh, not they don't care, but, it, you know, it's not a good use of resources, I guess they probably feel. But if they were she, if she was charged and convicted or pled guilty, even that would be an additional sentence that then there would be and would have to be served after it couldn't be concurrent. So uh, she it would be consecutive. And so you wouldn't have to do this anymore. Is that, again, right. a, 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 a correct reading of, of what would happen legally? That yes, ultimately that is what I would like to happen. Um, whether or not I can get things to that point is is just sort of it's sort of up in the air right now. But that is ultimately what I would like is for her to be prosecuted in Texas for the crimes that she committed there, um, when she was directly implicated by her own 
husband and accomplice. So um, I understand that it may have been an, an improper use of resources at the time if she's already incarcerated. But now at this point, I have to attend parole hearings. I have to speak on parole hearings. I have to write letters. Um, I build petitions. And this is work that I rightfully shouldn't have to do as a victim of a crime. Um, and these crimes have no statute of limitations. Felony murder and kidnapping uh, don't have a statute of limitations. So the potential to open the case back up is there. And, and that's kind of what I'm hoping to do. Now, um, let's now uh, connect people. I'm sure people, after they hear this, they're going to want to uh, uh, talk to you by email and instant message. And so uh-huh. the, the safe way that we do this by not telling anybody where you are, but you do um, have a uh, Facebook page like uh, Murder Most Foul has a Facebook page. So why don't you share that with my audience? Yeah, so I um, shortly after the book, when I realized that Jackie was not convicted of the crimes against myself and my mother, I developed a page called My Journey for Justice. Um, right there is where people who choose to follow me can see any updates that I'm going through. Um, I, I get a lot of questions through that um, by privately or, you know, just through stuff. I try to answer things that way. I try to answer as often as I can. There are days where there are some times where I just really can't focus on something like this. So I'll put it away, but I do try really hard to answer the people that follow me because they've all been um, 1000% supportive. Uh, I've had people that have been following me from the very beginning. Um, they're always, they always have kind words. They always have very sweet messages. Um, occasionally I get something negative, but I try not to really focus on anything like that. So that's the safest way that you can connect with me is through my, my page on Facebook called My Journey for Justice. My journey for justice. Well, this has been uh, draining for me. I, 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 I can can only imagine what it is like for you. Um, and, you know, you've you uh, said again, I want people to go to that page because they can see the full 45 minute Facebook live video recording. Um, uh, now, how long ago was that? I think you told me 2019 that you did that video yes, on your own um, site. So, so I filmed I, I filmed that um, live reaction after the diabolical episode was aired because when the episode aired I woke up to hundreds and hundreds of questions and messages and friend requests and things like that. And it was a lot of the same questions. So I just felt like it would be easier for me to address them all in that in that manner. And a lot of times I really just as much as I want to protect my own location and identity, I also want people to know that I'm, I'm like a real person. Like this, this sounds like a, in a, a story and a movie and a book and a TV show, but I'm, I'm like a re- I'm a real person in that there are real feelings and real, you know, complexities that are behind this. And, and I really just want people to know that, yes, it's sensational and yes, it's a story, but it's actually a real person's life and a real person's legacy. And so we come to the end of another episode of Murder Most Foul, this time about a survivor of murder. If you found today's episode interesting or helpful, maybe to someone you know, I hope you'll share uh, this episode with them. Um, Comments can be left on the website via email. And that uh, address is www.murdermostfoul, all one word, no caps, no spaces, dot com. So until we meet again, stay safe. And for God's sakes, don't murder anyone.